Today on the podcast, we have my new friend, Mark Vrogop, and he is a pastor in College Park Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, he's joined us on the podcast today to talk about his book called Weep With Me. And the subtitle is How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Zach, it's great to be on your program, man. Thanks for having me. It's a joy. Um, so, Mark, <coughs> excuse me, Mark, tell us a little bit just about who you are and, and what you do. Let us just get to know you uh, a little bit. That would be great. Yeah, sure. So, as you mentioned, I'm the pastor, one of the pastors, lead pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis. Been here since 2008. Prior to that, I served in a great church in Western Michigan, which is really where my wife and I hail from. We were both raised in the Western Michigan area. We met in uh, college, but both from uh, Michigan, and I'm married to my wife, Sarah. We have uh, four uh, living children. Uh, we have uh, two twin boys that are grown and uh, on their own, one that's married, both living in Indianapolis, another son who's a senior in college, and then a 14-year-old daughter. In between our third son and our daughter, so I said four living children, we had a stillborn daughter, 2004. Uh, she was born uh, just uh, two days before her, her due date, and uh, in God's hard providence, she was not alive, and that led us into a pretty extended, uh, difficult journey, uh, multiple miscarriages, just a really, really challenging season. It was there that I kind of stumbled into the language of lament and have done some work, some writing, some teaching in that space, and that also is um, informs the book that we're talking about today in regards to lament and racial reconciliation. So as I was writing that book on lament, the first one called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, there was a conversation beginning in our church about racial reconciliation. And um, that's began to realize, hmm, folks that I'm talking with, these black brothers and sisters um, and other minority groups, they're actually lamenting. And yeah. um, so kind of put those two things together and um, was, has led to some thoughts, some progress, some difficulties, but trying to stumble our way forward in this conversation about racial reconciliation. Wow. Well, Mark, it, would it be okay to chat a little bit about the loss of your child? Absolutely. Um, that is what you just described is maybe potentially one of the worst case scenarios that I can imagine. I also have four kids. Um and man, I mean, just as a pastor, God forbid that would happen. Something like that has not happened um, yet here at our church. Um, we're not a huge church, um, but I can't think of anything more challenging. And um, how did you, maybe just share with us, like how did you begin to pick yourself up off the floor in the process? I just, I'd love to hear your reflections on um, grief and how that manifested itself for you and your wife and how that affected your marriage and your family. Um, I think it's really important for people at our church to hear how people endure suffering. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, picking yourself up off the floor is not a bad way to describe it because, you know, grief of any kind and a tragedy like that just levels you. And, you know, part of the fear is, man, is anything, am I ever going to be normal again? Right. And the answer is yes and no. You, you find kind of a new normal that God um, 
helps you with and allows you to grow through. But grief isn't tame. And our journey was long. I mean, it was it was over a year plus with, you know, not only did we have this this stillbirth, just unexpected, like my wife just killed it with pregnancies. Uh, forgive the language there. I don't mean that. It's a terrible word to phrase, but she was just amazing with, uh, with, uh, with pregnancies yeah. and she um, carried our twins to, you know, 39 and a half weeks. Um, it just was remarkable. And so this was just really a shocking uh, thing. And then, you know, we couldn't get pregnant. We had in uh, and, and, and keep a pregnancy. So the grief just kept compounding over the course yeah. of, of, um, of the year long, uh, long journey. And um, yeah, that's where we found that for us, it was not only a great test of our theology of believing in God's goodness, believing in his sovereignty, even though this was really, really hard, there was this other path that just acknowledged like, life is really difficult. And those two seemingly irreconcilable realities just had to be embraced as true and real and not going away. And they're just going to be there. So in the first book on lament, I talk about that lament is the language for living between the pole of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. So yeah. like, it, it's you just kind of learn to live um, in that space, and it, it was it was a it was a pretty rough rough journey. But at the same time, God taught us some amazing things and tried to help us uh, not only cling to one another but also cling to cling to Jesus. And we also found that you know well-meaning people in the church just didn't understand grief. They didn't know what to do with our pain. We didn't know, we didn't know what to do with right, our pain. Right. Um, and when we talked about it. Uh, it made people feel really uncomfortable at times. Um, so when I look at laments and I just see really uncomfortable language in the Bible, it was liberating to realize actually there's a language for this that helps us to move forward from where we are to putting our trust in God. Right. And lament is that language is process prayer language designed to move us from I'm really in pain to I can really trust you while I'm yeah. still in pain. So that's what lament kind of was for us. Yeah, like it's really um, interesting that in the last series of podcasts with different authors, this has come up and the podcast that we just re released, um, well, when people are hearing this one, it'll be three weeks ago with uh, Pastor Sam Crabtree. Um, and he lost um, a couple kids through miscarriage, not as advanced as yours was, but this theme of suffering just keeps coming up. And I think it's, you said so much there that I think is really instructive that I'd love to unpack. Um, but I would love to hear from you, Mark, about maybe are there ways, a couple things, are there ways that you just feel tangibly different? Kind of like Jacob wrestled with God and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Like I've talked about that in my own life with the things that I've been through, like I'm different now. And um, how did this experience shape who you are to this day? It's defining and it's not, it doesn't change your identity, but it does, I think, change kind of your posture and how you move forward in some really good ways. You know, it, I was early on was having an email conversation one time with John Piper about this very issue. And he said, you know, uh, grief and loss creates an amputation. It heals 
but you're never the same. Right. And I think that's a really good metaphor, a really good illustration, because it acknowledges the reality of the loss. Like uh, our daughter's 17th birthday would have been February 17th. And every year when that anniversary comes around, we we feel it. It, 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 it marks us. Um, the other thing is, is that it, it tuned my heart to hear the suffering and hardship of others in a way that I didn't hear it before. Yes. So it, it's sort of like um, when you've walked through it, your, your radar is up and you can, it's like, you can hear, it's like, it's almost like I'm, I'm bilingual now. I, I understand English and I understand grief English yeah. so that when somebody is communicating about their loss, I, I have an identification with them in a personal way. And even if it's a different kind of loss, I, I understand that grief language. So um, it also, uh, so in that respects, you know, with the racial reconciliation issue, when we begin having these conversations with minority church members, it just dawned on me, uh, my goodness, they're, they're actually, they're grieving. And if we don't understand that, we're really going to miss this conversation. Right. And some of the misunderstanding of people who are grieving in their loss was really being played out in understanding what our minority church brothers and sisters were trying to say. Um, so, and the other play, the other way is that also changed is, you know, I've, I've been to the bottom and I've seen God's grace meet me there. Yes. And William Cooper has a line in his hymn, God moves in mysterious ways. He says, um, you know, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that to be true. And so that allows me to give a, a different level of pastoral counsel to people with a greater level of conviction. Like I've been to the bottom. Jesus is still there. We're go you're going to make it like God's going to help you. Uh, yeah. So more hopeful, but also more earthy and more realistic. So it, yeah, it, it fundamentally um, changed some ways in which we live in our posture towards a lot of situations. How about your wife and yourself? Sometimes when my wife and I go through a, a time of suffering or something that we have to grieve for us, it might've been our miscarriage many years ago. We grieved in different ways. And that was really hard for us and, and our oneness um, in our marriage. Was that something that you guys went through? We're yes. grieving, grieving in mean, different I ways and making sense of that. Yeah, I think every every couple goes through that, which is part of the reason why, you know, grief and loss can actually create a lot of marriage turmoil. Yeah, because it 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 can tend to push you apart. I, I described it recently like a, a a seesaw. So in some respects, you know, it's actually helpful when you're grieving differently because, um, in some cases, somebody who's really struggling can be helped by the other person in the marriage who's doing pretty well, as long as you see that your recovery is designed to be a way of helping your spouse, not a way of pushing them to feel like you feel. Right. And then other times it kind of flips the other direction. And I, I think, you know, like so many things in marriage that surface selfishness, grief can surface selfishness. Nobody grieves the same. And if you think your spouse has to grieve like you grieve, uh, that's, that's a huge challenge. And additionally, grief is scary. I mean, a lot of us are very, um, not just uncomfortable, we're, we're terrified of other people's grief because we don't want to feel that way. And 
we are uncomfortable with it and we want it to stop, which is why a lot of people try and accidentally and sometimes unintentionally shut down people's grieving. It's a which, lack of like a lack of patience. Yeah. And yeah, just it's a lack of a lot of things, including patience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, e- e- even just, you know, a lack of um, of concern and love for another person. Why can't we just sit in the space and why, why, why do I have to feel like I have to fix it? Right. Like, why, why can't I just sit here and grieve with you? But that takes a, you know, a fairly highly tuned degree of other centeredness to be okay with that. And yeah. back again to the, you know, racial reconciliation conversation. I think that's, that's part of the problem is sometimes people are like, I just want to fix this. Well, what, what if that's a great motive, but what if, Fixing it looks like sitting in it for a little bit. Yeah, amen. One, one other question on this topic before we move on is, you know, this this exact kind of situation hasn't um, happened at our church, and I hope it never does. Um, we have had people that have suffered in various ways, um, dramatically at times. In a, in a season of intense, acute suffering like this, if you came in as a consultant and something like what happened to you, a stillborn baby happens here. How would you coach our church to handle this um, in a way that we could just come alongside as a blessing and not um, as someone who just adds to the reasons why they are grieving? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll offer some general concepts, but all these need to be obviously individually applied. Sure. The first is the time to build a theology of suffering was yesterday. Right. So hopefully you've got people who have an understanding of God's sovereign purposes, who've wrestled with the problem of evil in the world, know the Bible to be true, know that Christianity really works, and it works especially when life is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that would be one piece. What I find in the spaces, in the theological spaces that I operate in, is that the challenge for people in our churches is not to believe that Romans 8 is true, all things work together for good. Our problem is knowing when do we use that verse. Amen. And um, so something that I've said with our church is hard is um, hard, hard is not bad. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is, is that many people want to quickly jump to hard is not bad and almost to the extent that they don't even not willing to acknowledge this is really hard so theology matters secondly presence matters mm-hmm. um the the most helpful thing that people can do sometimes is not say anything and just be there express their sorrow um resist the urge to try and uh, find a silver lining on the clouds uh, resist the urge to offer Christian platitudes that might feel uh, true, and they are true, but in the moment they're just they're just not they're just not helpful. Um, encourage the the family or the individual that you're walking with that you're going to remain with them, and that in the intensity of the grief, instead of leaning away, you're going to lean in, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, encourage them in their grief process that as they're grieving, success doesn't look like they 
don't grieve anymore, success looks like the distance between these major grief moments gets wider and wider. Uh, and so they're, they're going to continue to grieve, but the intensity and the space is going to um, uh, grow longer in between those, those moments. And then, you know, for parents who lose children, uh, one of the biggest fears they have is that people are going to forget. Yeah, uh, you know, and so for the first two years or so, when people would ask us, "How many children do you have?" That's a hard question to answer, right? And it's 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 difficult because I tell you the story, or you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So finding different, just unique and creative ways to care for the person, depending on their personality, the nature of their grief. I, I think it's it's not a one size fit all fits all. Yeah, it's a mostly important to be present, to be super aware of kind of the need of the moment and figure out. So how does the, how does the Bible apply not only uh, in terms of theological truth, but in terms of contextualization as it relates to our relationship? Yeah, that's really, really helpful, Mark. I, I really appreciate your insight. I wasn't planning on talking about any, any of that, but um, I think it's there's so much wisdom in someone who's gone before us sharing how just the pathway of endurance and perseverance in the midst of these crazy, crazy scenarios we find ourselves in, in, uh, in this life. So I appreciate your honesty with such a sensitive topic. Yeah, you're welcome. And, uh, there'll, there'll be lots of opportunities. We live long enough. There's right. lots of opportunities to apply God's grace to pain because yeah. pain is a part of our existence until Jesus comes. Right. And I, and I really appreciate what you said about the time to think theologically about suffering is yesterday. And that's one of my burdens for our church is that we are prepared with Bibles open to understand what, what we all will face at some point. And so that we're not naive or, or um, our expectations are appropriately managed, right? In terms of you will have trouble in this world. Take heart. I've overcome the world. But Mark, your book, Weep With Me, um, the subtitle, I just, I just want to start here, the subtitle, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. And I, maybe I could ask it like this. Help us understand, give us a window into how this book even came about. Like how you go from this book doesn't exist to becomes an idea in your brain. Maybe it's a sermon or maybe it's a series or something. You know, I don't know how, you, um, how the, these ideas take shape for you in your context, but and then it's like, oh, I think there might be a book here. Um, like, how did it, how did, just bring us into the evolution that where it goes from idea to like, actually, this is a book and this is a book that needs to be written. Yeah. So while I'm writing Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy on lament in general, and there's a little section in that first book on lament and racial reconciliation, this, there's a conversation that's happening starting grassroots um, as uh, minority brothers and sisters are starting to begin to talk with our elders about where does this conversation about ethnic harmony fit into our overall discipleship plan at our church. Some of that is due to uh, the number of uh, people that are coming to our church because of where we're located. Uh, some of it is because we're starting to just think theologically about how this applies to the vision of uh, Revelation, where 
uh, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are gathered. And we're thinking, why can't that be now in some form? Also looking around us at the broken world and the racial tensions and animosity that's just part of the global story of every human being, every culture, every nation, but also part of the story of the United States and even part of the story of our own lifetime. And I start just engaging in some conversations with some uh, minority church members. And it just, it just dawned on me one day that what's happening here is they're grieving. And until I understood their grief or until I understood that they were grieving, uh, it felt like the conversations were kind of like we'd get close and then be like, they would separate or it would just like it, lament, as I say in the book, doesn't solve all the problems, not even close. It's a tool that can be useful to opening a door for racial reconciliation. So there's a lot more that needs to be done after you lament, but there's there were parallels between helping people with grief and trying to engage in this conversation uh, about ethnic harmony. And I just think that there's some conversations in the church that if you don't get the conversation topics or uh, the particular elements of that conversation in the right order of importance, um, it's really hard to have that conversation, especially when it relates to deep grief, trauma, um, abuse, things of that sort. It's a different kind of issue that requires a different kind of discipleship posture. So. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of, as I'm doing this book, I'm experimenting with some things just personally. Um, we ended up uh, taking what uh, I later called a civil rights vision trip. So we loaded up uh, 50 people into a bus, two thirds white, one third black. We go to Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, um, Memphis. And in the context of those four or five days together, visiting historic sites in, in US history that become sort of uh, marking points to understand the background of the issues that we deal with even today, uh, we spent time lamenting together and yeah, it proved yeah. to really, really be effective. It, it, you know, again, it didn't solve all the problems, but it, it, it opened the door for additional conversations. It became a, um, uh, uh, not a neutral, but um, a helpful language that helped to kind of reset the, the conversation. And so in the book, I talk about kind of a process for engagement in this uh, reconciliation effort, which looks like first love, committed to you as a brother in Christ, listen, uh, I'm gonna have my posture be like the book of James says, quick to listen, slow to speak, love, listen, then lament. I think especially for uh, white brothers and sisters, lament is the first thing that we can do. Most of us want to do something. Like, what do I do? Like I, feel, like, I feel terrible. I want to try and do something. I want to talk about this. Or So if you want to, first thing you should do is lament and then learn and then leverage. And again, where lament falls in that process is really important because if you don't lament well, then your learning or what you're trying to do in terms of leverage can be really misguided because you've not taken time just to be in the space. Um, and lament has the possibility to build trust between people in an environment where there isn't a lot of trust and yes. it, 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 it proved to be helpful. So that's kind of worthy. And then finally, the, I just looked around and I was like, you know, nothing's been written on this in this space. Um, other people have maybe taken a little bit of a chapter. There's some books that have little sections on lament, but I just thought there's a, there's a bigger need for this in the book. Um, part one kind of addresses how might this look part two, how does this work in white spaces? 
you know, part three is how does this work in minority or black spaces in particular. So um, it just felt like it might be helpful to, to serve the church. Yeah, man, that's so good, Mark. I can see how um, that trip to the South would have been so meaningful because I think at times, I, I think of it maybe along the lines of Christians going to Israel and you see with your eyes like, oh, wow, Jesus and the apostles would have walked right here and I'm looking at the Sea of Galilee or I'm looking at you know, Jerusalem and I'm like, this isn't just some story. Like this actually took place in real places, you know, it's, it's easy for us to, to just kind of think of things as a story. But when you go to Birmingham and you see, you know, or go to Selma and see where people marched or people were kicked out of uh, certain restaurants or, or whatever it may be, like that, that just lands on you with more profundity, I would imagine. Would that be true, yes. you think? Absolutely. Or let me give you another example outside of the race reconciliation space. If I you and your wife would come over to our house and I tell you that I had a daughter that died in 2004. That's one thing. If I hand you the photo book of that day yeah. and you page through that day with us, or if I show you the box with all of our little mementos from that day, it's a different kind of experience. We yes. moved it from theoretical and intellectual to now more emotional and relational or yes. If you were to visit her grave in Western Michigan and we stand over the top of that grave site and you see the words from Job, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord and her little name, Sylvia Elida Rogup, it, it changes the reality. And it's also a gift that I share this moment with you. So that experiential thing is really important in the same way when it comes to racial reconciliation, it's, um, when you're there, it changes the reality of, of, of what this means. Yeah. So just yesterday I was in uh, Minneapolis, got up early and went down to the site where uh, George Floyd was killed. And uh, there's a memorial there and was just down there and just spent some time praying. I could have prayed in my hotel room, but by praying in that spot, kind of a pilgrimage of sorts, Yes. it, it helps to, I mean, this this really happened right here. Like right. the whole world blew up this summer right here, and it just it just brings a new kind of reality. And in some cases too, it the Civil Rights Vision Trip helps to force me to think about things in ways that, because I'm in that space, it gives me the freedom to go a little deeper than what I might um, in some other way. So reading a book does the same thing. That's great. It's a good start, uh, but being on site, it was, has been super transformative. Yeah, man. I, I would love to hear about some of those initial conversations if you're willing. Um, I know I've had in conversations with minority brothers and sisters, just like these moments where you're just kind of dumbfounded, like, Oh my word, I didn't realize that you kind of live in a different world than me, you know? And I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend, and and he's a he's a big guy, uh, athletic. Um, he's African American. His wife is white, and twice he's been pulled over and um, asked by police officers. Well, they, they separate him, and he goes and talks to one police officer, and she goes and talks to another police officer, and the and the police officer talking to his wife says, "Are you being held against your will?" 
and that's happened twice. And um, it's just a tra- like a traffic stop, traffic violation, whatever. Um, or it's under the pretense of a traffic violation. And I'm just like, like that happens? Like I've never, I've never once uh, like had a negative experience with a police officer. I don't think ever. Other than I was speeding and I needed a ticket or whatever. You know what I mean? And so it's like I was whatever, 35 when I, when I heard that story, you know, um, there's been other moments, you know, where I just like, wow, like I just didn't realize cause I haven't had, I hadn't, hadn't had those conversations, um, or even thought to ask, I would imagine you've had a similar experience maybe in this journey with hearing from people and how they're grieving and why they're grieving. Yes, I have. And, you know, those stories are real and they're deeply painful because they are just the reinforcement of what many of our black brothers and sisters feel all the time, which is that they feel like they're the other. And that's was true historically. Mm-hmm. And there are ways that that is still at some level reinforced in particular spaces uh, today. And uh, you know, whether it's you come in our case they are attending our church this is when I kind of first realized oh my goodness and we asked them about their experience at our church and I'm learning that you know some of them have some pretty difficult experiences on Sunday morning with how they're treated um, what's said to them and you know once you kind of have the relational credibility for them to kind of open up their stories, it's its pretty remarkable how often those sorts of things that you're describing um, happen. And in the book, I, I talk about a number of them. They're just so incredibly deeply painful and um, traumatic and scarring. You, know, you don't you don't get over that kind of stuff easily. And, and then in some cases, it doesn't matter what the intention is of the person, and only the Lord knows how much of that is abjectly prejudicial or racial uh, racism, but frankly, it, it lands very painfully on the hearts of people that I love. And it's like, so what do we do about that? Right. right. So it's very, uh, very challenging. And, and it's, uh, it's, it, it's something I think to walk with them and lament with them. And every time a, another news story emerges, even as the facts are still unfolding, even as we're trying to figure out what exactly happened in that, you know, incident, and what exactly does biblical justice look like? Well, that's that's a really important category. But meanwhile, my brother or sister has been traumatized by the fact that that's even a question again. Right. It's just it's so uh, so painful and so hard. So um, yeah, it's something I, I would hope that the church would be willing to step more into um, instead of maybe stepping away from. What does that mean for your church to step more into it? I think that our Empathy and sympathy acumen is uh, could be better, meaning that when I saw, for instance, the video of uh, George Floyd's death with the officer, you know, with his knee on his neck, uh, what first crossed my mind is, oh my, how is this going to land on? And then the list of names of my brothers and sisters minority brothers and sisters who I love dearly. And right. I was just like, Oh Lord Jesus, not again. Right. And um, I think that, you know, 
that's an important shift, I think, that's that's happened for many of us, that rather than seeing that as primarily and first as a law enforcement issue or suddenly asking all kinds of questions, well, like, why was he arrested and what was going on there and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera all of which are not illegitimate questions. It's just a matter of what order do we get those questions in? And I think that's one of the ways that lament helps is it it's not that the questions about facts and information and what true justice is, like that's still important, 100%. But we need to get those in the right order of importance because we don't maybe understand um, what kind of issue that we're dealing with here. Right. So it's that's a pretty important piece for us to, to work through. And so and I think that, you know, we've gotten... Um, we've gotten better at that. And at the same time, just to be very honest, there it's, it's also, you know, this 2020 has not been an easy year for any church. It's not been an easy year for our church because right. with the flashpoints of culture and everything else, you know, there's some, some folks who've said, Hey, uh, we just, we don't want to engage in this conversation and us advancing this conversation is not the right conversation. And so, you know, we're out. And so we've, we've lost uh, people because they just, that's just not the conversation that they think we should be having. So it's become at one level, deeply meaningful and caring for one group of uh, folks. And uh, same time, it's become very hard and polarizing for others. It's just, it's, it's a place that the enemy has a stranglehold in both the substantive issue of um, ethnic partiality and also how we talk about it both of those issues are just so traumatic and difficult in the context of the church even today. Yeah. I mean, for sure, for sure. And I'd love to hear more about that, Mark, if you're willing, like, how are you seeking to, Oh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the resistance. You know, what is the resistance? What is typically said? How do you guys address it? Um, Yeah. How, how, how would you articulate that? Well, I think we're still trying to figure it out. Um, because like with everything, there's so many layers and, um, you know, on, on, on my part, I think that there's, um, there's just a lot, there's been confusion and I think fear and then a lack of personal proximity related to COVID that's made things more, you know, more difficult because it's hard to be together. Say, well, let's talk about this. Well, we, we can't, or it's very, very difficult to be able to, uh, to do that. And so, um, you know, I think every Christian would acknowledge that, and even every Christian within our church, that, um, you know, gospel unity creates racial harmony. Like, that's something that Jesus did. Yeah. And the vision of the church, Revelation uh, chapter 5 and 7, you know, is this beautiful vision of a multi-ethnic people. I think based upon your experience, your proximity, some of your cultural, even political views, tend to inform kind of how you see the issue related to race and racial reconciliation. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there are good Christians who don't see this issue entirely the same. And sometimes it's because of where they're coming from. Um, and then you've got folks that, um, you know, really want to see the issue um, clearly, but they're not understanding, you know, each other. And then other folks that I think underneath, they probably have some some level of either uh, cultural incompetency, or maybe they just harbor um, some longstanding uh, prejudicial views that are just 
it's just been part of their upbringing. So it's hard to know. And, and I think part of the challenge is, is the minute you start talking about this, defenses go up. People say, hey, you're not saying that I'm racist, are you? And, um, and our minority brothers and sisters want to know, hey, do you even, you even care about us? You know, so right. it's, it's really a challenging, um, challenging conversation. We've, we've tried to, um, you know, kind of define as elders what we're, what we're saying, what we're not saying. And at the end of the day, I'm less interested in the, the, the cultural and political dynamics. What I'm really interested in are the theological and relational dynamics in the context of the church. I Amen. think that if any place on the planet that this should be able to work, if there's any hope for people, despite their ethnic and racial um, categories and how that tends to make them kind of separate from one another, it ought to be in the church. In fact, I think that's the church's story. You know, um, gospel comes to the city of Antioch, a segregated city, and it's the first place that people are called Christians. And why are they called right. Christians? Well, because they didn't know what they were. They're not Jews. They're not Greeks. It just, it just, the church was confounding the world. That's what Paul said in Colossians 3. Here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free. Christ is all and in all. That was a radical idea, and I still think that radical idea should be um, should be lived out. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the things that, um, you know, between civil rights vision trips and an ongoing discussion group um, that happens every month. Uh, if somebody wants to engage in this subject in the framework of, uh, of our church, there's great oper- opportunity. What does that discussion group look like? Yeah, so once a month, um, it's just a forum for um, Christians in our church to get together. And they'll, they'll talk about just about anything. They'll hear about somebody's experience, maybe some biblical teaching on a theological framework of racial reconciliation, why this conversation matters, trying to move it from the theoretical and propositional down to the kind of relational experiential, like any good Sunday school class would um, would do um, in their efforts to both, you know, bring good content and also to be able to care for each other. So it's pretty wide ranging um, uh, discussion and topics that they, uh, that they, they, they share with one another. I think the point of that group more than anything else is there's a a regular rhythm, an established meeting place where we could say, hey, let's talk about this intentionally. Let's, let's, let's see what we can do to try and understand one another's perspectives. And then also realize, hey, bottom line, we're brothers in Christ. We may not see this eye to eye. This is a safe place to ask really awkward questions. Uh, we're not going to be easily offended. Yep. We're going to love one another more than we hate where you're. I'm going to love you more than I hate where you're at. Like, right. cause we're brothers, right? right? And that's not going to change. And I think that's been helpful. And um, pretty effective in, in helping to navigate some choppy waters. Yeah, that's really good. I, I feel like the challenge is um, it's easier maybe to coach someone up on how to have a one-on-one conversation, but setting the culture of a whole organization is a trickier thing to try to accomplish. Now, I think, I don't know, Mark, I don't know your church super well, um, I think I, it's a bigger church, a church more than a thousand. Is that correct? Yeah. Pre COVID. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many we have now, you know, pre COVID right. we were averaging about 4,000 on a Sunday morning. Yeah. So establishing a culture of this, um, that's easier said than done, you know? Oh yeah. And, for sure. but I yep. feel like it, it, it ne- it's never going to be less than what it happens from the front and happens from leaders. And one of my convictions has just been, um, you know, diversity among leaders. Now, we don't have a lot of diversity at our church, but um, I would assume that that's, or you can help me, correct me if I'm wrong, but like 
diversity um, among your leaders would be a value, I would imagine. Yeah, it's actually one of our core values is biblical unity in diversity has been a value at our church since its founding. It's taken on new shapes over the years. And, you know, we would want our eldership to be reflective, first and foremost, uh, of those who by the Spirit have been gifted for eldership in terms of their character quality, their competency, um, but also realizing that um, if it's a majority white space, uh, minority brother or sister to break into that, either coming to a church or in our case for eldership, a minority brother coming into that, there are um, barriers that are there that we need to reckon with so that this environment is not only hospitable, but that this person is valued um, uh, and, and treasured for the gifting that they have, not only in terms of their theological acumen, their gifting shepherding of, of people, but also their understanding of cultural competency. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's an important piece for us. I wish that our, our staff and even our eldership was even, uh, was even more diverse uh, than, uh, than what it is, but it's, it's something that we don't want diversity for diversity's sake. We don't want just the appearance of, we want true biblical unity that's reflected also in um, our diversity. And we think that the gospel actually is designed to, to create that. Yeah. How do you help people? That's really good, Mark. I, I really appreciate that. And man, I mean, hats off to anybody who's trying to pull this off, you know, because it's, it's, unbelievably complicated and and challenging um but it's like just because it's challenging doesn't mean we can give up right right yeah it's very costly for sure and you know it's quite 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 frankly that if you try this and you do this well you you should expect difficulty i mean just because this is this has been a historical problem in the united states for you know 350 plus years uh, the remnants of, uh, you know, American and church history are still with us, not to the same extent they were in the 1950s and 60s, but they're still with us. And right. those those issues have lingering effects. You know, Peter talks about that you should turn away from the um, your the, the the sins of your forefathers, um, and and this is just one of the things that we just need to be like, look, not in my generation, God helping me, we're not going to repeat the same mistakes. So you have to know what those mistakes are, you have to know where they're applicable today. And then how does the gospel apply to those? Right. How have you guys seen different people functioning in different giftings for the sake of the advancement of these kind of things? Because it's, I I know it's not just going to be like, well, we start a program at our church and then and then all of a sudden snap our fingers and everything's fine, but it's a body of Christ kind of thing. And I would imagine you've seen different people in different giftings um, being raised up to advance um, harmony and, and, and these conversations and listening. And is that, am I, am I onto something there? Yeah, because, you know, like in everything in the church, um, unique giftings are all part of what it means to be one body. And so, um, you know, for instance, in our worship arts team, they have a, a pretty amazing diversity of people who are a part of their, their ministry. And, you know, music can become a common ground for, you know, people of differing backgrounds to say, we have a lot that we're different about, but we both 
we both love praising Jesus together. Right. And so that's, you know, that's amazing to see. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, much in the same way that you got a, a football team, you know, like we all, we all want to win. And so we're going to, we're working together because of a, of a common, you know, vision. You see that in a, in a worship ministry, you see that with different folks who have um, life experiences and are able to articulate that. So people with the teaching gift, uh, those who are able to help even kind of nuance things for us. Some folks that are a bit more prophetic, they have just kind of a bold edge to say, you know, sort of thus says the Lord, or that's not right. And yeah. you need those people. And we also have folks that are more pastoral in their instincts and are more like, you know, Hey, before we kind of go there, let's, let's wrap the hammer in velvet, if you will. And, uh, you know, the church needs all of those. And I think it's important to recognize that every issue uh, needs to be led by a multiplicity of gifts and gifted people. And I think it's especially important as it relates to racial reconciliation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's something that I've really been thinking about for our church is, you know, sometimes it feels like folks might want just the folks might want to know what is our church doing about this. Right. And and sometimes I want to say, well, I'm not totally sure what that means without you telling me what are you doing? Because and I don't want that to sound defensive or anything, but I, I truly mean it. Like, because we are the church. It's not the leaders of the church aren't. Yeah, sure. We set the course in unique ways and stuff like that. But when it comes to what are what is the Vine Church doing or what college church, um, college park church, excuse me, Mark, uh, right. is doing. There's a lot of different ways to look at that, you know. And what I want to try to emphasize is what we're doing is what we're doing. Meaning, you know, like, well, if you want to ask me what I'm doing, well, here's what I'm doing. Well, there's minorities that live across the street and I chatted with them today and had a good talk and I, we want to be friends with them. And um, I think I, I'm bringing this up because it, for me, it all feels so overwhelming for me personally, but also as a leader, um, because what can I do? You know what I mean? I can do some things, but the state of this problem that's been happening for centuries um, is not something that I'm going to solve by myself. I don't want that ever to lead me towards apathy, but there can be a, a sense of feeling crushed under the weight of it at the same time, right? Yeah. How, how are you personally trying to make sense of that as a leader, but also just as a person? Yeah, I mean, one we all got to think about, you know, um, movement and change that happens, you know, at the kind of corporate, structural, societal level. But that's also reflective of, reflective of the individual level. Take the civil rights movement, you know, um, the the bus boycott in Montgomery doesn't happen without Rosa Parks. So you got one scenario that then creates, you know, a movement that you know, grab the intention of the entire country. Um, but behind that moment with Rosa Parks was an entire movement that was uh, was developing. So it's it's not an either or, it's a both and. And sometimes people can think, well, if, what's the church doing? Well, the church needs to do some things, but the individual also needs to embrace their own um, movement of, of personal growth and change and things of that sort you know, it, it, the, the church isn't going to be able to sufficiently pursue racial reconciliation if 
racial reconciliation isn't happening in the context of living rooms and dining rooms. Right. So that's, so that's not really, it's not an, obviously not an either or, but it's a both. And I think the church's role is to set the framework, help people understand do the very best that they can model this, but the real work of true reform and change is going to happen on the individual level. And some people have more ability to enact uh, reconciliation change than others because right. of where they are, where they live, the kind of roles that they have in society. Um, they have greater ability to even, you know, make things that they would see presently wrong, make them right. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you're a, a police officer, um, we praise God that you're serving on the police force. We need more Christians, not less Christians involved in law enforcement. But what that also means is the extent to which you can change a subculture that might exist in a little part of your force, do that. Yeah. Um, and make that, make that change, be a part of that, that change. And um, the extent to which the, from the law enforcement and you're, you've got people who are, um, conducting themselves in a way that fits with a biblical view of justice. Well, praise God for that right. and continue to, to, uh, yeah, and that's true in a company that's true in, um, um, in, in all forms of government, true in the local church. So we've just got to think through what, what's my individual role? What's the corporate role? And that's, I think one of the ways that lament can help is lament gives us something individually to do it. Instead of just watching the news, it allows us to lament what I see and I to talk to the Lord about it. And, you know, a third of the Psalms are lament oriented and a number of them are justice oriented and God, this isn't right. Help me, right. help me to know what to do. And I think that's, that's where lament serves the church um, pretty well. Yeah. Cause it, cause it communicates a posture of humility and that's a great starting point in any relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And man, I, I, I hear that. Like I sometimes feel Mark, like, when it comes to the systemic issues that feel so like out there, like I'm not sure how I can even touch that. I believe it's there. Um, whether it's unjust housing laws that we've seen in redlining in the past or, or anything of that nature. Like I wonder if more Christians just need to get involved in politics. You know, um, do you guys have many folks thinking along those lines? I've often, I've often thought that like real change and people say this all the time, like real change. If you want to see real change, Start with your local community, you know, and work your way yeah. out, you know? And yeah, I'd even go a little deeper. I'd say, like you just did, if you want to see real change, start with your living room, right? Yeah. Yep. And then your local community. And uh, yeah, and so I think we need Christians at all, um, in all levels. And that's, you know, one of the delights of being in Indianapolis as a capital city. And we got people who attend our church in all kinds of different roles, you know, in society. At the same time, I wouldn't want to... Um, you know, a, a person who's maybe it's a stay-at-home mom and she has a couple of kids and like a park with a minority church member or a friend having conversations about life, like that's awesome. Like, right. like that's 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 revolutionary, right? So um, the challenge when you get into politics and higher levels of government is you know, those sorts of change and, and, and kind of work into those spaces can be really, really challenging. And it's slow work because it's yes. so complicated and yes. there's so many layers. And so we need to, by God's grace, 
where there are things that don't fit with a biblical worldview of what is right and wrong in God's eyes, biblical justice. We need to do what we can to see those changes take place. Yeah. At the same time, we ought not think that that's the only place that that operates in. For sure. And so we need Christians at all levels doing what they can to just bottom line, just be a good neighbor. Yep. And whether that's with your neighbor neighbor or whether that's with your neighbor in the halls of Congress, like be a good neighbor. Yeah. Live out the gospel in a way that's charitable and loving. Sometimes I feel like we, we make this too complicated too. Because, um, you know, I can sit back from the George Floyd situation and go, I don't know what to do. Like, this is so overwhelming, you know. Um, what am I supposed to do? Well, I could I could try to diversify my relationships. Well, we live in Madison, Wisconsin, 8 or 9%, you know, uh, black. And, you know, I don't know what the exact statistics are for other ethnicities. It's challenging, right? Um, so what do I do? Well, I mean, my wife and I and our family, we just started, I mean, imagine this, we just started praying like, God, would you help us diversify our relationships? We want to be able to lament with people. We want to have more diversity in our family. Um, I have a black daughter through adoption. So we obviously um, are concerned about this issue and our relationships. And it's been amazing to see God is answering that prayer. You know, he's pleased to answer that prayer. And it's not hard to figure out because this corresponds with his will, of course, that we would value one another as image bearers. And so I, I just want to encourage folks, like, don't get too overwhelmed with what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? How about we just start with asking the Lord what I'm supposed to do and see what he provides. And he might not provide in with the speed that I want. But I look back over the last year, and my, my relationships are more diverse than they were. And it seems like God mm. has answered that prayer. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, and you know, there's lots of things you can do, even if you're in a space that's, that's fairly monocultural. And there's nothing wrong or sinful about that. It's just, hey, be the best good neighbor that you can in the neighborhood that you live in. Right? Yeah. And um, so there's, there's ways to kind of think about this at a more global um, level. And that I mean by just outsiders, your little local proximity. It's what we do in, um, when we think about reaching unreached people groups or reaching the nations with the gospel. We've, we've got to understand what's going on in other places around the world. And so, you know, uh, one of the books that was super helpful is The Warmth of Other Suns. Yes, I read about it. about the, the mass, you know, migration. Yeah. The north, to south to the north. And just understanding, wow, this is this is a part of, history that informs present reality and just being more aware is super helpful. Yeah. I also feel like the Christian worldview, hopefully now people that call themselves Christians, you know, when it comes to the Capitol riots or whatever have, you know, man, evangelicals, not a great title right now, you know? And, um, in light of that, like maybe I might, if someone asked me, are you an evangelical? I might say, well, it depends on what you mean by that. You know, um, let's talk definitions first. But I do feel like the biblical worldview is is the hope for there being some type of progress being made. When I look at our culture and the bifurcation of it and the the the, the sides seemingly becoming more and more concrete, where does true dignity for someone that's different actually come from? You know, and 
it seems like the Christian worldview is uniquely equipped to say, hey, everyone is of value here. People are made in the image of God. If I'm just a cosmic accident and the product of the strong eating the weak, does it follow that I should love my neighbor as myself? No, that doesn't make sense to me. But if I'm created by God who says all people are made in my image and they have value, period, like that seems really motivating to me and powerful. Um, So I just feel like in some ways Christians holding to true Christian theology is in some ways, again, I'm not a prophet, but like it seems like our culture is getting more and more angry and more and more divided where does dig, true dignity that can last, where does that come from? I see the Christian worldview having really something to say in that. Absolutely. I think it's a really unique opportunity for the church. And I think we see in church history that the church can shine really brightly when the darkness is really dark. So rather than panicking, we have to step up and go, hey, this, this is an opportunity. Like, let's go. Let's, let's demonstrate what we, uh, what we think about the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We know that story. We, we, and, and what does that mean to live in that? And so I think Christians should be aware, uh, informed, but also encouraged and motivated to keep advancing the mission of the church. Yeah, amen. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to let us highlight your book and um, I really resonate with it, just the posture of lament, the, the, the posture of weeping with those who weep as, as a first step. I think there is, um, that language is, is really, really helpful. You might not be able to solve all this person's problems. Ultimately, only God can do that. But you can empathize. You can be present. Um, and so that to me is super helpful. That this, is a, this is a lament for many, many people, this is a lament scenario. Yeah. And well, yeah, and that sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping would happen with the book is to give people a tool. Again, lament doesn't solve the problem. Uh, it's one tool I think that helps to just open a door on this conversation that I think the gospel applies to and the church could be equipped to be able to help us navigate through this really challenging conversation. Well, thanks, Mark, for joining us. And uh, next time you write a book, I'd love to have you back and love to uh, help you sell some copies. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your interest in uh, Weep With Me. All right.